Welcome back to Tennis Paradise at the end of the BMP Paribas Open, another exhilarating Masters 1000 showcase here in Indian Wells, where we will shortly hear from the champion, Taylor Fritz. Former WTA player Jill Kravis is here with me. We'll also hear from Juan Carlos Ferrero, Paul Anacone, Michael Chang, Ivan Lubchic, Craig Boynton, the coach of next week's Miami Open defending champion, Hubie Hercatch, among others. But first to the final here, where Taylor Fritz has beaten Rafael Nadal to capture his first Masters 1000 title and become the first American to win here in Indian Wells since Andre Agassi way back in 2001. I mean, this is just one of those, those childhood dreams, like winning this tournament, especially Indian Wells, like this is one of those childhood dreams that you just never even think could come true. So it's, I just can't even, I just keep saying no, no, just no way, it's real. And you've done it on half a leg too. I mean, Rafa wasn't quite right, but you were hobbling around this morning. How tight was that decision? And, and also how did it affect the way you played? It was just, I, I can't even begin to describe how like ridiculous it is that I was able to, to play how I could play today. I've never experienced worse pain in my life before a match. I came out here, if I knew it was gonna be bad, I wouldn't have come out here because I think people saw it. Um, I took a couple, a couple of change of direction steps and, and screamed. It was like, and I was trying to like, honestly, I was trying to act tough because I had cameras on me. Like, it probably looked like I was over-exaggerating the pain with how loud I screamed when I felt it. But we did a lot of work leading up to the match and uh, I went through a roller coaster of emotions before the match from thinking just there's no way I could possibly play to then doing all this work on the ankle, doing so much stuff to it, and then going out again, hitting on one of the backcourts, all of a sudden being really happy, thinking, oh my God, maybe I can play, and then came out here and, and really it didn't affect me at all on the court, so couldn't be happier. And to do it against Rafa Nadal, just finally, what kind of a springboard does it feel like this has given you? I mean, it's just, I've lost, I've lost these matches against the big guys my whole life. It's always felt like they're just unbeatable. So to do it on the biggest stage, there's, there's no other way, you know, to win, to win a big title. I feel like you gotta beat, you gotta beat the best and he's unbeaten this year. And obviously, uh, I hope he's okay. Obviously there's some stuff going on. I can't imagine how the body's feeling after 20 something matches, but yeah, it's great. Taylor, we'll let you go. You've got a trophy to lift. Well Thank done. Thank you. Thank you. Jill Krabus, we weren't even sure Taylor was going to make it onto the court today. I mean, he was hobbling around. Your thoughts on him becoming the latest American Masters champion? I, it's just incredible. I mean, really, it's hard to find the words. I think we're all still in a little bit of shock, but... It's, I say that mainly because what, what you just said, I was watching his practice on center court before the match even started and it didn't last more than five minutes probably because he wasn't feeling great. And then I heard later from you that he went out and was looking a lot better. Um, obviously had the tape on the right leg, which helped a lot with his movement. And so from the beginning, I was kind of watching him and he was moving really well, but no surprise that he got a lot more aggressive, which is what he needed to do today to make the point shorter. And so he maybe, so wouldn't have to test that movement as much. But I mean, huge credit to him. He, he fought so hard, he had to dig deep. I don't really feel, I mean, I don't wanna take anything away from Taylor. I don't feel like Rafa played the best match that he's ever played, but I don't necessarily feel like he's played 
the best this entire tournament. So, but he's gotten through his, that matches. So that means huge credit to Taylor to be able to finish strong. He had a match point. Then over 20 minutes later, um, you know, when that slips by, players start to wonder, can we can we close it out now? And he did a phenomenal job of closing that match out. Yeah, he he really did. And he's the first guy to beat Rafa this year. Let's not forget. He he has some very good people in his corner. Here's his coach and mentor, Paul Anacone. Oh, he's done a great job, and I, I was listening to some of his interviews afterwards. It's interesting because he said last year he was playing better, but this year he's kind of almost more proud because he's managing his average level better, and, and I am as well. I'm more proud of that. When he plays well, he's going to win most of his matches, but when he plays average, he can lose a lot of matches, and I think that's why he's losing less these days is because his average level is better, and uh, I'm really proud of that. Let's talk upsides and downsides. What are Taylor's big upsides for you? Well, just his just huge power, and he's just such a great power player. You know, there's no reason that he can't get, you know, there or thereabouts top 10, and then you just don't know what can happen. So I think the biggest thing is just to get stuck into the process and not really worry. I'm not really worried about numbers for him. Uh, I'm worried about progression, and we're seeing a lot of progression and a lot of great things through his different levels. So to me, that's the most important thing. Where can he improve still, do you think? He's got to get better in the transition area. We still see too many mistakes when he's coming forward to the net, uh, things like that. And, and, um, but he's getting better, and, and he's willing to keep working at it. So for me, that's the most important thing. Physically, has he still got... So obviously, he's not going to get any taller, but we see guys like Alcaraz now who are just you know, stacked. They put on so much muscle sure. and bulk. Is that just a European versus American thing? Well, it's a different version. Taylor's got the long, lanky body, right? So he's going to be more like a Zverev. You know, he's going to be longer. The legs will start to thicken out. But he's always going to be more wiry, strong at the top. But that's fine. That's just body type. But he's d done a lot of good hard work with uh, Wolfgang Oswald, his physio, who also helps with the training. Gina Ball's done a great job with him with his training. So he's doing well, and he's making progress. On this generation of American players more generally, you were so deeply involved with the previous kind of golden generation. Mm -hmm. How promising do you think this is, this group of players? I think it's very promising. I think we all make the mistake of trying to compare. And, you know, the era of Agassi, Sampras, Curry, or Chang, you know, that was magic. You know, you just, it just doesn't happen. So it's tough when that is the barometer. But when you look at what we've had in the last 20 years, and then you look at all these young guys, we have a lot of young guys that can be top 15, top 10-ish players. And then once you get in that area, you just don't know what's going to happen. Because who knows, maybe someday Roger, Rafa, and Novak won't be playing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Jill, how much of a steady influence is a guy like Paul Anacone, someone who, he, I mean, he's coached the very best, yeah. Pete Sampras, Roger Federer. What does that do to sort of guide Taylor? I think a lot of it is mentally. I mean, just knowing that Paul Anacone has been around those other players, he knows how those other players operate in big moments like this when you have um, tension and stress and trying to close out matches, which is one of the hardest things to do at one of the biggest events to, or one of the biggest titles you're going for. And so to be able to have that voice from Paul Anico in, in your ear is massive. And I know he's worked with him for three or four years now, I can't remember. But he's also brought Mike Russell on board as well, who was, I don't know if you remember him as a player, but one of the hardest working players out there, which just carries, carries over to Fritz because his day in and day out work showed on the court today. I mean, he was grinding through every point and huge credit to Paul and Mike. 
yeah, Mike was in his corner. Paul's actually courtside yes. for Tennis Channel. Not necessarily in his team today, but still there. And you could see him sort of look at him from time yeah. to time. What does this do, mentioning Tennis Channel, what does it do for tennis in America? I think it's great. I think, you know, these group of American men are, are all supportive of each other. They're, they're such good friends. We had Fritz, for example, since we're talking about him, played doubles with Tommy Paul. Fritz was watching Tommy Paul's match when he beat Zverev at night. They just all are there for each other, which is so huge to be able to push and root for each other. It just inspires you to have that all that support of the other players behind you. And for Rafa, um, well, the run comes to an end. Only the 20 wins in a row. Um, <laughs> Only. But given that he was saying at the start of the year he could barely walk, I mean, it's incredible what he's achieved. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, you could see the emotion on him out in the court, too. I mean, it was kind of tough to watch him sit after the match and just kind of put his head down, um, like just keep his head down the entire time after he lost that match. So I feel like that one hurt for him. I think he was struggling with his pec a little bit. And so the fact that he's been able to manage his body so well, he's been struggling with the foot for a couple of years, obviously had surgery in the fall. And to still get to the final hill is absolutely an incredible feat. And I know he's one that never wants to lose. So that's why he looked a little bit upset. But I mean, still to get to the final and to just gut it out. I mean, it was just these two guys today just fought so hard, both of them. Yeah, it really did look like Rafa couldn't quite commit to some of his ground strokes much today. I mean, honestly, he's going to go and rest up. Yeah. <laughs> for the clay court swing. Yes, yes. Um, and he'll he'll be back, I guess. I mean, look, I, I, we don't know how bad that pectoral right. injury is, yeah. but I mean, he, he's going to be back for the clay court swing and, and the favorite again. Yeah, and it makes it makes sense to me. I mean, I know it's it's unfortunate for the Miami tournament, and but it makes sense to me because the, these hard courts, with how much he's playing on the hard courts leading up to this event, it's, it wears and tears on your body, and the clay is much softer on the body. It's not as taxing. So it makes sense to me that he's going to go home and take a break and just get ready for his favorite surface. Quick mention on the men's doubles here as well. Yeah. Um, Jack Sock and John Isner yeah. winning this together for the, the second time, I yep. think. I think it's Jack's third title. I mean, that was special. And doubles really been box office here this year. It has. It's, there's, I love this event in particular for doubles because so many of the top singles players get on the doubles court in preparation of going to Miami just to get another match. So that's always fun to see. But as soon as I saw that John and Jack were playing together, I was like, oh gosh, they're going to, they, of course, they're contenders to win the title. John with his massive serve and Jack to me is one of the best doubles players in the world since I saw him like three or four years ago. I mean, he's just so good. He's so aware of where his opponents are in the court. He knows exactly where to be. He's got that heavy forehand that a lot of even natural good volleyers struggle to control. And so he's just so dangerous on the doubles court. John's kept on saying this week that Jack is the best doubles yeah. player in the world. I put it to them right at the end of the interview yesterday after the final that they're top five now in the race to Turin. That's incredible. And, jo and John just said, wow, no, 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 we won't be, we can't, uh, we won't be there, we won't be there. But, I mean, on a serious note, if they played a couple of slams and a yeah, couple more of these, there. they could quite plausibly be there, 100%. Totally agree, yeah. It's just that they want to play that much doubles, yeah. Do you, do you think they can? I think they can. I think they can. I think maybe now that you put that in John's mind, he actually might start thinking about it now. <laughs> it's been another wonderful fortnight here in the place they call Tennis Paradise. Still to come, we'll look back a little more on the main talking points here. I have a feeling Mr. Kyrgios will feature. We'll hear from Craig Boynton. We take a trip down memory lane with Michael Chang. And ahead of next week's World Tennis Conference, we'll hear from an amazing lineup of coaches, including Gilles Savara, coach of Daniel Medvedev, Ivan Lubchic, and Claudio 
Pistolesi. Fascinating insights you will not want to miss out on. Before all that, let's hear from Juan Carlos Ferreira, the coach of Carlos Alcaraz, who took Rafael Nadal to three unforgettable sets in the second semi-final here on Saturday. Yeah, I'm very happy about the, the way he's handling everything that has happened to him, that everything has happened very fast. So uh, I think mentally, of course, at uh, his age, is uh, maybe not as mature as he needs to be at that time. But uh, of course, his team, I think we are trying to help him to handle all on the way we, we wanted to handle. So, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the team has that experience because lucky me that I, that I, you know, I had that life before and I experienced that and I know the way to handle it so I can help him to do it. I mean, he's going to be Spain's number two already on Monday. Yeah, I mean, but I think we have to go step by step, not thinking too much about all the things that have happened to him. Uh, obviously, just thinking about what he has to improve, how he has to improve it, and when he has to improve it. And then let him play and uh, don't try to put, to put on him on his back uh, too many weight. That uh, it's important. Uh, let him play and uh, be you know, happy on the court and uh, practice uh, as much as he can uh, to try to improve and, and, and that's it, that's all I wanted. In terms of setting targets for him, I know you don't necessarily want to do that too much, but he's just reaching his targets so quickly, you know, top 15 and mm -hmm. to win a 500, I think, were targets for this year. Yeah. How, how do you reset? Do you have to reset targets quickly all the time? No, definitely we have goals, uh, but my, my main goal is to keep uh, increasing his level because at the age of 18, uh, there's a lot of things uh, still to improve. Uh, of course, he's playing high level right now, and uh, because he's reaching very important uh, victories on tour and uh, in very important victories on, on very important tournaments. But uh, putting that on the side, uh, there's a lot of things to improve around him, and uh, you know my goals for the year, obviously, it's try to put him as high as, as is possible, ranking, talking, and uh, be physically as, as good as he is right now, because you know, injury is always gonna be there. It's, uh, it's one of the things that uh, makes me worried much about it. But uh, yeah, everything is going well, uh, and the team just hoping to keep on that path, that it's very good. I wanted to ask you specifically about the physical side of things because, I mean, wow, he's come on a lot in that area. How much work have you been doing physically with him in the gym? Uh, he's been doing three hard years in this part because uh, he's taking care about uh, out of the court. He's taking care too much um, because before he was not as uh, on, the, on the right line as we wanted because, you know, you practice three hours on the court and the rest of the time you are out of the court. So if you're not good out of the court, it's very difficult to be good on the court. So it's one of the parts that uh, he improved the most. And right now, uh, of course, we're still working on that, but he's uh, so much better than that. So physically is one of the things that uh, he improved the most. Uh, I'm very happy the way he's handled it. Comparisons with Rafa are inevitable. Talk to me about what you remember of Rafa when he was 18. Yeah, he was very strong physically, I remember, uh, with a lot of energy on the court. Same vamos everywhere, uh, uh, playing uh, very aggressive all the time and uh, more specifically on clay. 
at the beginning, I remember that on hardcore he was uh, maybe too far away from the line and I was running a lot, but uh, on clay he's one of the best that i seen with at the age of 18. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it was impressive. Former world number 39, Jill Craver, still here with me. Jill, it's felt like a giant step forward for Carlos. I mean, win or lose against Rafa, but he played so well. Absolutely. I mean, you can only take positives away from that. I mean, obviously he's going to, you know, be upset about the loss. But I think what impresses me about Alcaraz is at such a young age, he's only 18 years old right now. And I think he has all the tools, in my opinion. He's technically sound. He's not afraid to come forward. He's got the drop shot showing that he has that variety already. But a loss like that to Nadal, how poised he was. And, you know, to, it's so important as players to be able to take losses in a very poised way. And he does that exceptionally well. Obviously, he's going to be upset with that. But he's got Juan Carlos Ferro in his box supporting him. They're going to have a chat. They're going to learn from that. It's going to hurt for a bit, but they're going to learn. They're going to grow. And I think it, it shows me the character that he is to be able to accept losses like that with such grace. I mean, he's got so many tools in his toolbox, as you yes. say. What do you think is his best shot? Um, I mean, we talk about the forehand a lot. I think um, his backhand is very technically sound as well. I love that he throws that forehand drop shot is exceptional. If you can hit that and be successful against someone as fast as Nadal, that just goes to show you how good that shot is. I do feel like there's probably room for improvement on his serve. Um, he worked a lot the last year on his fitness to try and get stronger, which I think has helped him. Um, I think his biggest asset out of all that is his speed. I mean, it is hard to get a ball by him, and that is intimidating when you're on the other side of the net from that. Yeah, other players having to do an awful lot to get the ball past him. Let's talk about a few of the other players who we've seen here in Indian Wells. First of all, the other losing semi-finalist, Andre Rublev. Um, he looked so good again. Yes. What's making him so consistent this year? Um, I think his mentality, I think he his confidence has grown year after year. I think he's definitely gotten a lot more consistent. That loss against Fritz, I don't think he played that great in the second set. I know he was really flustered after losing that first set. Um, but I think he's such a powerful ball striker. And he just doesn't hesitate to go after the ball. So it was about being able to incorporate that consistency from the ground as well in certain moments. And that's what I feel like has improved the most. Rewinding a little bit more through the draw, Nick Kyrgios took... I mean, we got to see the best of Nick this week in many ways. And, you know, you might argue the the worst too. Um, Took Rafa Nadal to, you know... The wire, really, though. I mean, it's just box office when he's playing like that. Yeah, I mean, he's he's so fun to watch and he's so talented, as we always say. And I have to say, this tournament, he was the most focused I've seen him throughout an entire tournament. Um, I, he probably is going to hate to hear that because I think he's getting tired of hearing that word focus. But I thought he was mentally strong. Obviously, he showed some of his temper come out during that Nadal match. But it's I think it's difficult for him to control his emotions sometimes. But at least he bounced back after that immediately and played just a really strong tournament. It's the slight frustration with Nick that if he were to be playing week in, week out a little bit more, right. 
he'd win that match. Yes, I mean, I think so. It's, I mean, we talk consistency. Consistency is so important. And what you do on the practice court really transfers to what you do on the match court too. So it's not just going to have to come in matches for him. It's going to have to come week in and week out in training as well on the court. Let's talk about Cam Norrie just briefly. I mean, he's a win away from going top 10 this week. Right. Um, such a consistent performer. I felt sorry for him out on court nine as the defending champion. I know, you know, I didn't know. get to play on center till yeah. what, the quarterfinals. I think he handled it like a pro, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but as I said, a win shy of top 10. It's so consistent all of a sudden. Yeah, and he, you know, he's such a great competitor. That's the thing that stands out for me from Norrie. And he's difficult to play because he's got that flat backhand, a little bit heavier spin forehand, so that contrast from the forehand to the backhand can be challenging to get a rhythm against. But his competitiveness is just awesome. And if you want to see someone who works hard every single day, he's the one to watch in practice or one of the ones to watch in practice. He's just exceptional. We we could go we could go on and on. It seems unfair not to mention Sir Mirmir Ketchmanovic, still just 22 and a quarter finalist here. Look out for him in Miami where all eyes now turn. The Miami Open presented by Ito Jill, the second ATP 1000 of the year, which gets underway already on Wednesday. It's amazing that they just come thick and fast. Sure to be in the mix once again is the defending champion from Poland. Hubert Hercatch, a point away from the biggest title of his career. Championship point, reaches up, serves, gets the serve in. The forehand's in play. The forehand plays through the, the middle of the court. It's deep from Hercatch. It's deep again off the forehand wing. The backhand from Hercatch cross court to the backhand from Sinner, slightly flatter. The backhand from Hercatch stops at the service line. Backhand to backhand they go. Championship point from Hubert Hercatch. Redirected from Sinner. Forehand cross court from Hercatch. Up the line from Sinner. Stretch from Hercatch. Backhand cross court from the Italian. The slice from the pole. The slice from the Italian. The slice from the pole down the line finds the line, it doesn't find the line from Senna and it's game set and championship to Hubert Hercatch. He wins the biggest title of his career. He is the new world number 16 and he is the first Polish player to win a Masters title. What a performance, what a week from Hubert Hercatch. He is your champion in Miami, beating Yannick Sinner in an hour and 43 minutes and straight sets, 7-6, 6-4. Gigi Salmon with the commentary of Hubie Hercatch winning his first Masters 1000 title last year. And he can be just as confident this year, according to his coach, Craig Boynton. Hubie's in a great spot now. Um, he made turn last year. And it was a, a late push for Turin, and it was uh, pretty intense and pretty emotional. And uh, it took him a while to kind of reset. Uh, he did a great job competing in Australia, and we're talking about ATP Cup. He did well there, um, but now he, I think he's he's reset and he's uh, ready to take off and go on another charge. Making top ten—that must have been such a big thing. I mean, how do you set more targets after a guy like Hubie's done that? Well, for me, it's never been about the, the number. It's been about the improvement. It's been about working the plan. And uh, you want to, I'd like to have QB get in uh, positive situations on the court and work on the negative situations that his opponents can expose. So for me, it's been pretty easy. We just, we just work, we might be working on different things and setting different goals because he's achieved uh, his, his, not so much performance goals, but um, you know, the goals that we set out to improvement in certain areas of his game. In terms of the American hard courts, I mean, last year was just a dream run, wasn't it? Uh, did it almost set expectations too sky high? No, no, because really the, the, the sensible way of looking at things 
is looking at the race ranking. So as you know, the ranking he has right now is a, is a year ranking from the, this year, uh, 365 days. But you really look at the race ranking, which starts January 1, because sensibly you're going to pick up points where you didn't last year, and you might lose points where you gained points last year. So you look at it like that, it kind of takes the mindset of, well, I need to defend points or whatnot. No, 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 you just go and you play your game, and the points will come. Jill, Craig Boynton talking about working the plan with Hubie. How did you approach the tennis calendar year? He's talking about the process. Did you set goals or did you prefer not to set too many hard and fast goals? Yeah, I set I set small goals. I think um, you know some players are are very different. Some set long term goals. Some set mini goals. I think you know that example, Craig Boynton with Hubie Hercatch, especially going to Miami. It's never easy to defend a title. Of course, we just talked about Nori. It's always tough because you have the the points in your head that are going to be coming off. So that's never an easy situation. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to sort of listen to your body. It's not easy to make a full calendar year plan at the beginning of the year. It depends how you feel, how well you do in tournaments, and then you have to work out the plan from that. Hercatch, another one who just seems to fly under the radar. Yeah. I don't know whether he, it's because he's softly spoken or because he's from Poland, but it's a hell of a game. Yeah, I think he's very quiet. Yeah, and I th- he comes across as a shy guy, but I've heard he's really funny. Um, and Craig has just mentioned that he can be really sarcastic at times and his humor comes out. But Craig, Craig loves working with him because he listens really well. He absorbs and tries everything that Craig suggests, which is what a coach loves. Um, and so he and he's always willing to try new things just to get better. Not many men have traveled from Indian Wells to Miami and won the two events back to back. I'm not going to put you on the spot, Hard. Jill. Djokovic and Federer have done it, obviously, in recent times. Sampras and Agassi, two more safe guesses. You'd be right in picking them. There was another American who got there two years before Sampras. 1992 was the year Michael Chang. I was going to say Chang. Pulled oh, off man. the Sunshine Double. God gave me the talent to play, but the but the wit to also go about finding a way to win. And I think that's always been been a strength of mine. On top of that, going out there and just really playing with my heart and never giving up. Look at his entire body in the air as he makes contact with that ball. He was just like a little a little mosquito. He couldn't get rid of him. So I think Sampras does have a mental block against Michael Chang. I was so excited to be out there playing on tour against the best players in the world. I grew up watching on TV, and all of a sudden they're on the other side of the net. I mean, it's just super exciting. To play this wonderful sport of tennis. There's been so many successful Americans. There's a lot of encouragement from, from everybody. He scares people with his foot speed. He was so fast. Oh, what an effort for Michael Chang to get to that. He never had to tell me, Michael, you need to get up for this match. It's an important match. <laughs> you never had to tell me that. Jack just works his way into the point so well. Hall of Famer, great guy and super fun to watch. Thinking about uh, running for office here in Cincinnati. So coming from an Asian background, you know, mom's like, you, you got to get your high school diploma because if something happens where, you know, you can't play tennis anymore, you, you got to have education to fall back on. He has this mental edge on so many players. I think for me to win, um, both Indian Wells and, and Miami. I think it's always been a special feat. I think all the players realize that you've got two huge back-to-back tournaments. Michael Chang, too smart for these fellas. Coming into Indian Wells, I was actually not playing that well. So really just kind of struggling through my matches and then all of a sudden something just, just clicked. My timing clicked, my movement clicked. Nothing phases Michael Chang. 
the tide completely, completely shifted. As for Michael Chang, boy, it has been a good year for him. We saw a gutsy performance by a great champion throughout the week. Miami's a little different. It's a different flavor. We want to welcome you to the Miami Heat Family Festival. We're all having a great time. Number one in the world, Jim Courier, is trying to stay number one in the world. He has to win this match to be there. I was really, really pumped to play Jim. He'd reach number one. And Jim Courier is all at sea. Game, set, match, change. There's nothing uh, that you can see today that would make you think he can't go all the way here. That era of, of American Mincinis will probably never, ever see that again. With Chang, Courier, Agassi, Sampras. What an extraordinary point. And even Brad Gilbert can hardly believe it. Carl Chang, Michael's brother. And we're talking four of the greatest players ever, um, all playing in the same era, all from the same country. But today, the sold-out big event here is the men's final at the Lipton. Michael Chang of the USA against Alberto Mancini of Argentina. I've had a good record against uh, Alberto Mancini in the finals. I felt like if I played good, solid tennis, I felt like I had a great chance to win that match. $197,000 point for Michael Chang. The championship on the line, Lipton 92. That particular year in 92, to win back-to-back -back was, was really, really special. I knew after it was done, it was, it was something that I would remember for a long time. Hats off Arthur to Michael Chang. Michael Chang on a hot streak, his second tournament win this year. My dad is the most unselfish person ever. He never asks for, for anything. And, um, but I could tell like how, how proud he was for me meant, meant the world. Um, and uh, you know, to see him so proud um, you know, in that aspect was, was really exciting. But around the world, Michael Chang has been a giant in our sport. You know, I've had multiple conversations now with, uh, you know, with my mom and, and, um, you know, and just thanking her for, uh, for the sacrifices that they made so that you know, I could excel and, and be as good as, as I was on tour. Because um, certainly without their dedication, without their love and their sacrifice, you know, it, it wouldn't have happened. Great to hear from Michael Chang, Jill. And, and we also heard there from Taylor Fritz, John Isner, and Pete Sampras. How well do you know Michael Chang? I actually, I've spoken to him a few times. I wouldn't say I know him extremely well. Um, but as an American, you're always kind of around the Americans. And, but um, he's a great guy. He's very quiet. Um, but he, he doesn't live that far from me in California, actually. I know his wife pretty well, Amber Lou who used to play on the tour. But, I mean, he's great. I mean, he he's obviously been had been working with Kei Nishikori for a while, and he's spoken outwardly of how much he's enjoyed that partnership. And I love that Michael Chang's, I mean, when I see him, he's always on the court with his kids playing tennis, which was really fun to see. Do you see him coaching anyone else now? Or what kind of player would you expect him to coach after Kay? Um, I think he could coach many people. I think because of his mentality, I don't necessarily feel like he would shy away from different styles. I think it would be more about the mentality and how hard he worked and how focused he was every moment of his career. And I think that a lot of players can absorb how great he was in all those aspects. Jill, thank you very much. I will let you go. We will be hearing more from you throughout the year on the podcast and with your exclusive one-on-one -on -one interviews that you're so good at getting. Anyone you're still dying to get? 
Oh, there's a whole list, Seb. Come on. Who, who, who would be um, top of the list that you haven't talked to? I would love to talk to Carlos Moya that I haven't spoken to. Um, and I would love to talk to Ivan Lubicic because I just want to be in the minds of those guys of, I mean, the incredibleness of Rafa and Roger and the mentality they bring to the court every day. They are both difficult to get hold of. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've spoken with Carlos Moya and he's lovely. I've never spoken with Mr. Yes. Lubitsch, but funnily enough, as we're going to hear shortly, he is going to be in the World Tennis Conference this week. Jill, thank you very much. Thank you, Seb. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. The start of Miami also coincides with the second World Tennis Conference getting underway, a virtual event from the 24th to the 27th of March, featuring some of the biggest names in tennis coaching. That also means that over the next few weeks, we'll have a selection of wonderful content to bring you. And we start this week on the subject of communication between player and coach. And in the case of Daniel Medvedev, it's clearly something that his coach, Gilles Savara, is very good at. I think most of the coaches are aware that communication uh, is, is very important because every day with a player, what, what you leave on the, on the court or outside of the court, you understand? I mean, I'm sure that every coach feels that you work with the player to make him a better player. But to be a better player, you need to, to manage, you know, the, the training, everything you do on the court. But also at the same time, it's how you're able to bring this, um, I mean, to bring this to the player to make him to make him understand what you explain him, what you want to teach him to improve. And um, let's say that this part is, you know, it's in parallel of the of the practice, uh, and it's more, you know, the human side and uh, the relation, the way you 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 speak and talk to the the player, because sometimes just telling the player to do something, it's it's not enough. There is so many things that you can feel between the coach and the player that can put you in trouble. That you, as a coach, I mean, as a trainer, you. You want him to do something, but you realize that he doesn't do it or he doesn't understand or, um, you know, he's, uh, he's reacting and stuff like this. So me, with, especially with a player like Daniel, I understood very early that I would have to improve my, my way to talk to him and also to accept that sometimes he has his vision uh, his feeling and to consider his vision and his feeling to be able to go where I want to go with him to make him improve. There are, of course, barriers and distractions that come in the way of effective communication. And that's also getting tougher, according to Roger Federer's coach of six years, Ivan Lubcic. Well, it's not easy these days. I mean, honestly, I think it's, it's one of the reasons why the young ones are struggling to challenge the best. You know, it's just distraction, uh, amount of information that they have to deal with every day, it's just incredible, uh, when it wasn't the case, you know, uh, when we grew up 30 years ago, 25 years ago. So this is definitely not helping, honestly, this young, young generation. Second, in terms of, of coaching and, and um, communication, is that, you know, when you have a kid, when you have a young player, obviously the, the idea is that you tell the player what to do at the beginning, you know, and then as the player grows and mature, then this kind of telling the player what to do turns into suggestion, and then, obviously, the older the player is, the more the listening the coach needs to do, you know, so just to understand uh, what he's dealing with. So it is different, you know, if you, if you work with young players and mature players, you know, in terms of how do you approach 
actual coaching. And I, of course, I'm a strong believer that, that we know that, but, you know, the coaching on the pro level, uh, but even in the juniors, I mean, you know, the dinners, the lunches, the, 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 the time off the court, the, any kind of communication is very important. You know, it's not just the time spent on court because in the end of the day, you are developing the person, right? It's not just the tennis player. And this is where these days is different. And, you know, the, the kids and, and young players these days, they are used to look at the screen a lot these days. So sometimes, and I find that interesting that, you know, more than before, because before we didn't have that, you actually need to show more what you actually are talking about instead of just verbally explaining yourself. You know, the kids are used to see things these days, you know, and this is something that I think has changed a lot in the last 10, 15 years. It's also not just about lines of communication between player and coach. Italian Claudio Pistolesi has worked with Monica Seles, Robin Sodling and Daniela Hanchikova, among others, with teams of trainers, mental trainers, physios and, crucially, with the younger players, parents. You have to identify where is the border until the coach can go talking about the relation between the communication between them, between the son and father, uh, son and mother, daughter and father, daughter and mother. You know, it's, uh, it's uh, delicate. It's, it's delicate. You need to be prepared. You need to put yourself in the, in the shoe of the parents in order to communicate well with them and to never forget that they not always, they are, they must be, uh, they have obligation to be prepared on tennis. And nowadays there is internet, so they go a lot to get information from there, but uh, I always give the example of somebody as a, as a pain somewhere, they go to internet and, and you see a huge range of disease. <laughs> you think maybe you have a cold, you think you're about to die because you, know, you read on internet and you see all the possible complications. So you have to explain that in internet, there is not the truth. There is, there is an ocean of information. And that's why there still exists the coach. Otherwise, there wouldn't exist the coach anymore. You know, they need the coach to, to maybe... Also, there is an end, humility and, uh, to be humble from the parents too, to understand that if they're not their job, they need to learn themselves. It's kind of coaching the parents. So the communication with parents from the day one has to be that, look, I want to help you. I want to help you to understand better my job, to understand better the game of tennis, to understand better how much time you need to be successful in tennis. Now, this is very often is, is a misunderstanding. So it's so important the communication at the beginning of the, of the relation, coach, player, and, and all is behind the player which in the junior case, most likely is the parents. This is incredibly important uh, for a coach to know how to communicate. And when all good things inevitably do come to an end, according to Pistolesi, clear communication is more important than ever. The coach has the responsibility to be ahead, to understand, to prevent problems, to be looking in the eyes, you know, the, to, the communication, the body language, even when you talk is very important to be clear, transparent, and don't be afraid to lose the job. You know, the message, the communication, the message you send to the player, say, look, I'm here, I give value to my job. I hope, I hope that you are very happy with that, and I hope to be very happy with you as a player, then everything is fine. If not, it's not a tragedy if one uh, relation ends. And even, in, even though when you end the relation between coach and player, the communication has to be nice and leave the door open and try to not have any issue, fight. That's why it's important to make very clear the financial deal. 
So let's not let any hard feelings when you finish your relation with the player. Sage advice from Claudio Pistolesi and before him, Ivan Lubcic and Gilles Savara. To hear more of those conversations in full and more coaching goal from the likes of Boris Becker, Brad Gilbert, Tommy Haas, Nicolas Massou and Tony Nadal, head to worldtennisconference.com and sign up for a pass to watch 40-minute presentations from all of the coaches, plus two live panel discussions per day from Thursday the 24th through to Sunday the 27th of March. That is it for this week. Come back on Tuesday for an exclusive chat with Miami Open tournament director James Blake, and again next Sunday when we'll look back on week one of the second Masters 1000 of the year the Miami Open presented by Ito and we'll have much more from the World Tennis Conference. I'm Seb Lozier with Jill Krabus. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis. <laughs>